Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Crude oil inventories fell by more than 4 million barrels, this according to the EIA. This took the market by surprise. We're seeing uh, oil reverse earlier declines and surge on the heels of this. I want to bring in Stephen Shork, president of the Shork Group, coming to us from Pennsylvania. Stephen, I'd love to get your reaction first to this in light of some of the uh, concerns that there have been about uh, whether or not OPEC will agree to uh, sort of reducing some uh, some of the production caps that they've had on. Does this come as a surprise to you, the inventories fell? No, no, it does not come as a surprise. And anyone who seriously watches this market on a week-to-week basis, uh, this should not come as a surprise to you. Uh, the expectation, according to Bloomberg, coming in today's report, was a build in crude oil stocks of 2.1 million barrels. Uh, that's just idiocy, uh, Lisa, because... You <laughs> Tell me how you really feel. And not... <laughs> oh, absolutely. Because I, I just, it, it just, it sticks in my craw that that people look at these weekly numbers as if it's actually possible to gauge the inflow outflow of something like oil and so many different variables of it in so many different market areas. And if you really think that you can call this market uh, plus minus on any given week, then then go with God. All right, because <laughs> it is absolutely impossible. So, Lisa, what you have to do is you have to look at the statistics. You have to look at the seasonality. Are the markets, are inventories moving in the correct direction? So, for instance, last week, inventories reportedly rose by 2.1 million barrels. This week, they reportedly fell by 4.1 million barrels. Okay, so that's about a a net 2 million barrel draw over the last two weeks. You know what? At this time of the year... Anything in between a 4.4 million barrel draw to a 1.1 million barrel build is normal. Yeah. So what we're getting out of this, Lisa, is this was a very normal report. Okay. Same that goes with gasoline and distillate inventories. So this should give no sort of bearing on what OPEC might or might not do in the weeks ahead. So I will let everybody who does uh, want to prognosticate on the barrel counts um, go with God. And I want to shift our attention to the OPEC meeting um, to try to get yeah. a sense of how this sort of factors into their views, not necessarily this reading, but just in general, the backdrop yes. for oil, because the IEA also uh, put out a report earlier today saying that Iran and Venezuela oil output could slump by nearly 30 percent. What are you expecting uh, from the meeting, the OPEC meeting? Uh, and, you know, do you think that it will materially lower oil prices? Uh, I don't know about materially lowering oil prices, because what the issue that OPEC really has to contend with is, to your point, Venezuela. Their their production has fallen because this is what socialism inevitably gets you to. So as that economy swirls down that socialist cesspool that it is in right now, uh, yes, those barrels will continue to be pulled off of the market. And that's the concern for the other members of OPEC, because crude oil demand has never been stronger. Gasoline demand here in the United States, I know everyone here is wringing their hands that gasoline prices are high, high, high. Well, you know what? Adjusted for inflation, gasoline prices are not high. Hence why gasoline demand in the United States has never been stronger right now. And they've never been stronger right now because the economy leads commodity prices and the economy is strong. Well, and everyone has trucks. 
Yeah, it, well, yeah, well, actually, I'm the oil guy. I've got a plug-in uh, really? hybrid, electric hybrid. Absolutely. This is the wave of the future. And this is something that OPEC, and that's a great lead in, Lisa. Thank you. This is <laughs> something that OPEC has to take into consideration because for the first time ever, there's a substitute in the market. Yeah. So there are two variables that changes consumer behaviors, a price shock and a substitute. We've, never, we've always had the price shocks up and down. We've never had the substitute. I am getting 57 miles to the gallon in an SUV. So therefore, 10 years ago, I had to fill up my gas guzzling SUV 57 times a year. This time, I have to fill up my SUV maybe 11 times wow. a year. So that is a considerable drop in demand. Now, I get it. It's just an anecdote. But look around. I used to live in Greenwich, Connecticut. What was the status car on Putnam Avenue 20 years ago? It was the Hummer. That car got 300 yards to the gallon. <laughs> Today, the status car tooling up Greenwich Avenue yeah. is the Tesla. Right. So absolutely, there is a change. And this is something that OPEC has to consider because if they continue to artificially drive prices higher, they are pushing people away from their market into the Elon Musk market. Right. And this is something that you have to keep prices low enough that you don't cannibalize your current market share, but high enough where you can make a decent return. Yeah. And right now, oil in that 55 to $65 range is an optimal level. So OPEC yeah. has to contend with keeping price, a lid on prices right now. Stephen, just 45 seconds left. I'd love your take on uh, President Trump tweeting that oil prices are too high. OPEC is at it again. Not good this morning. Does OPEC care? Oh, absolutely. Look at President, just ask Justin Trudeau for crying out loud. Yes, they should care what President Tweet is tweeting out every single minute, because what, what's, the, what's the veiled um, uh, message here? Hey, guys, I'm the United States. I have over 600 million barrels sitting in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. 200 million barrels are sweet oil, which I don't really have a lot of use for. So, Get, 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 get on board, or, yeah. or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull the plug on the SBR and flood the market. That's yeah. the message being sent to Saudi, and the Saudis are hearing loud and clear. Stephen Shork, thank you so much for being with me today. Uh, really interesting. Stephen Shork, president of the Shork Group, coming to us from Pennsylvania. The labor market is getting tight. If you talk to a lot of chief executives, they say it is hard to hire qualified workers. Our next guest is one of the fastest growing companies in Des Moines, Iowa. And uh, we have the chief executive officer here with us, Roger Hargens. Uh, it is the company is Acumold, and he joins us here in our 1130 studios. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Roger, you've hired a tremendous number of people, 84% staff increase from 2014 through uh, 2017. Has it been difficult to find qualified employees? Finding the right employees is always a challenge, but we've uh, we've been very fortunate because we have a, a good brand in our marketplace. Uh, we have a good culture, and we have good referrals from existing employees. But we decided to start our own program years ago, twelve years ago, uh, with the Des Moines Area Community College with the Acumult Scholarship Program. We determined at that time that what we were going to have to do was grow our own, so to speak. Kids coming out of high school that wanted to go to college to get a degree in tool and die making or robotics and automation, we started sponsoring that and funding the tuition 
for that. And it's been a very successful program. So can you give us a sense of what Acumold does? And uh, and it sort of goes against the grain that it's a manufacturing company in the U.S. It has not been exported. What does it do? Yeah, we're, we're a high-tech manufacturer of thermoplastic injection molded micro-sized components for the medical device, microelectronics, and micro-optics industry primarily. And we design and build our own tooling to produce customer-specific components, usually critical components that make their assemblies work. And we ship all over the world. We ship to 23 countries. We've been a net exporter almost 70% for 15, 16 years. Okay, so as a manufacturer in the U.S., have you been tempted to move any of your operations overseas due to a cheaper workforce or more potential employees? That's a, that's a great question. We get asked that a lot. Uh, the answer is no. The thing that we have found is uh, uh, the IP for our customers is very important. Their c- critical component designs are very important. The we made property, it, yeah. Yeah, intellectual property. And they made we made a decision to stay in the U.S., we're very competitive. We're highly innovative, and we've been able to attract the right kind of employee that we want for the longer term that helps solve the problems for producing components for our customers. So when you said that you're uh, you're helping to finance the education of specific individuals who you think will be good employees, what is sort of the most important thing, skill, uh, for your prospective employees to, to learn in a college-type setting? They need to really start grasping what the technical challenges on micro-sized parts are from designing of tooling and automation. They need to understand we're a culture of problem solving, and they need to really understand that they can work well in teams. We take a team approach internally as we solve problems for our customers. Um, One thing that I'm I'm wondering, you said that uh, you're an exporter, a pretty big exporter. Are you concerned or have you been affected at all by some of the tariff discussions or uh, tensor trade uh, discussions? We have not. Are you concerned about that? Um, We're always concerned about any trade barriers that are out there. We have not seen that have, and I don't believe we'll have any really uh, any big effect on on our type components that we produce. Uh, given the fact that people are talking about the tight labor market, um, have you found that you've had to increase salaries more than you had previously in order to attract talent? Yes. You know, it's like the, the market conditions. We want to uh, continually att- uh, attract the best and brightest. So ab- absolutely pay has to go up somewhat. How much has it gone up in the past few years? Uh and, and certain skilled trades, it's gone up more than others. Certain things, whether you're a robotics automation person or a tool and die person, it's it's gone up faster than maybe somebody without those skills that's doing regular production. So can you just explain what, if you go into one of the plants, what will you see? What you'll see at Acumold is, uh, first off, we have a team working together to design tools to build product, to build the tools and automation, and then run the products and validate them in our plant. What you'll be able to see is a teamwork of people. We have lots of areas that are proprietary, that are off limits, that only our employees and certain employees can be in those particular areas to produce these critical components for our customers. So their components, uh, I'm, I'm just trying to even wrap my head around some of these nearly microscopic parts yeah. that determine whether or not 
your phone, whether or not the you know surgical arm that go, goes in and does the uh, laparoscopic surgery, whatever it is, uh, these crucial parts that that the design of them is make it or break it. Is that right? I mean, am I understanding this correctly? You're right. The customer typically will design what they want. We work with them and help them make sure the design is ready for manufacturing. So there's always a compromise, making sure that it works well in a production environment for us to produce at a at a rate that makes sense for them. So we then produce the parts and ship them to our customers all over the world for assembly. And to, it can be med device. It can be... Uh, life sciences, it can be in like in blood glucose monitoring or different things there, that's a big area. Eye surgery, we're big into surgical components for the eyes. Okay, so uh, we've been talking a lot by uh, about smaller private businesses and how uh, business confidence has been surging. Do you feel that as well? Yes, very much so. We see uh, the competitiveness today, uh, and we've been competitive over the years, but today it's even more so because through innovation and automation, we've been able to remain very competitive on a world stage is the reason we're shipping to other countries on a regular basis. Are there competitors in the U.S.? or There's a few smaller ones, yes. Mom and pop type shops. Okay. So, uh, you know, some people talk about how there seems to be a bifurcation in the economy where uh, wealthier individuals are making more money and then there's a whole host of people left out. Do you see that or do you not see that? We don't, we don't really see that. We, we see anybody that truly wants to work and learn can get a job. Iowa has, as you know, one of the lowest unemployment rates at 2, 2.9%, I think, is where we're at today. So we're working, number one, to keep every employee, to grow their skill set and attract new ones. Do you think that uh, kids require a four-year education in college? In, in certain areas, if that's what they want to go into, yes, we don't require. What we're looking for is people that have those skill sets of really wanting to work in manufacturing, whether it's production, or if they want to go into tool and die, robotics and automation, those uh, two-year degree is, is a very good, uh, very good start for us. And uh, you certainly also are financing the Acumold Scholarship Program, um, which is really interesting, basically paying college tuition. Uh, and a part-time paid job to scholars who then graduate and begin a full-time position at the company. Roger Hargens, thank you so much for being here. Really interesting. Roger Hargens is Chief Executive Officer of Acumold, which is based in Des Moines, Iowa. It is actually one of the largest and fastest growing companies in Des Moines. Uh, So really interesting. Well, the NASDAQ in particular keeps climbing to new highs every day, which leaves investors with a big question. Does it have more room to run or is this sort of the peak of the cycle? Joining me now is Jim Key. He is president and chief economist for South Texas Money Management, uh, which oversees about $3.3 billion uh, and is based in San Antonio, Texas. But he joins me here in our 1130 studios. Jim, thank you so much for being here. Let's just start with those tech stocks because that's been a big question mark for a lot of people. Is this time to take some profits, sell the Facebooks, the Apples, et cetera, that are at record highs and invest in something else? Well, I think you should always control your sector exposure, and that's something we do at South Texas Money Management. But uh, within that, 
business investment spending is is one of the things driving technology. And when you have the interaction of tax cuts and, and deregulation, which we've had this year, uh, a lot of the business investment spending takes the way of information technology. So um, I think it probably has room to run, but I, I would watch I would watch my exposure to tech in general, to any sector in general. Okay, so I was looking at some of your ideas for what you liked. And I found them interesting. There were some contrarian plays here. Ford, I want to start there because Ford has been a real underperformer and there are a lot of question marks about that company. Why are you bullish on them? It is. It's what we call an ugly baby. And, you know, in... <laughs> We own value stocks and growth. It is. That's a Jeannie Wyatt, our CEO original. But uh, (laughs) the value growth differential, as you probably know, is kind of at an all-time high. It's it's hit there a few times before. And usually that gap closes with growth underperforming. So it's a good time to look at value. And Ford, you know... They've, they're behind their peers in operating. They've, they've been behind in the electric vehicle uh, uh, initiatives, and they've had a, a, a change, a churning. They've, uh, they've got a new CEO. They've got a team, Edison, for the electric initiative. They're obsessed with cost, uh, and they're contracting assets and focusing on ROIs. That's just what a value stock should do. Nothing's priced in, and the dividend yields you know, pretty high, about 5%. So it's a, it's a good, ugly baby value stock for us. Ugly baby. I hope that I – I mean, I guess that you kind of want to be an ugly baby in this yeah. market, but I don't know that I would really want that. Delta. Shares down more than one percent. You like this? You like this company? We do. This is a business investment. You know, at any firm, this one included, I'm sure. You know, when business slows, it's you know, pull in travel and don't use the, the color copier. But it, I think we're seeing the opposite. Business optimism is high. Uh, Delta has more exposure to business class travel than a lot of its peers. It's a best in class operator. It's its CEO Ed Bastian's. You know, definitely play to win guy. So yeah, we like uh, Delta a lot. So one thing that I'm struck by is how do you bet? on an airline company when their profits hinge so directly on the price of oil, which we have learned time and again is incredibly fickle and subject to all sorts of forces. It's very difficult to predict. It it is. Airlines, you know, Delta itself has its own refinery business. So uh, ostensibly that leaves it a little less expensive. Yeah, but it shares. Absolutely. They plunge in tandem with all the other airlines whenever oil prices go up. So Here's the difference, I think, and and I agree with you. In general, it's a tough business, but airlines are earning uh, return on investment above their cost of capital. Some of them, like uh, Delta, have been ratcheting up every year, so they're about double what they were through their in their longer term past. They used to be cost of capital businesses, and they and they haven't been in the last five or six years, and that's with high and low oil prices. All right, so let's move on to some of your other uh, stock picks. Raytheon. Yeah, this one's interesting to me. Uh, for a lot of reasons. Why do you like this one? Well, you know, uh, I'm glad to see the North Korea talks, but I don't think we're heading into a peace dividend era anytime soon. So aerospace defense, you know... Wait, hold on a second. Were you hoping for some kind of military conflict (laughs) so that your shares would rise? No, it's more of a military spending. And and this was something prior to the election, whether you liked both Clinton and, and Trump both... Uh, we're likely to spend more on on defense than than the previous administration. So I think missiles and missile defense is still a pretty good business going forward in this world, and that's what Raytheon does. Yay! And it's less <laughs> expensive than some of them, right? Yeah. Um, okay, so just on a general basis, do you sort of buy into or play into any of these trades when people start to worry about trade tensions and then they sell certain shares? Do you do that at all? Well, we uh, we don't. We haven't yet. Trade tensions, though, I think are starting to affect 
ex-U.S. growth. I think a lot of cross-business plans and spending are kind of sidelined. A lot of people are kind of taking a wait-and-see attitude. So, And I think that's showing up in some of the global, the global growth pause that we've seen. So it is important. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, you know, trade effect, we have exposure to most asset classes all the time. So in this case, it's hurt some of the global multinationals with a lot of international sales, but it's helped some of the small caps, and we have exposure to both. Just real quick, are you holding more cash? We are not. We always try to stay fully invested to our target. Uh, markets aren't cheap right now, but they're not outside of a normal range of valuation. And valuation tells you very little about what returns to expect over the next 12 months. It tells you a lot about what to expect over maybe the next 10 years or so. Jim Key, thank you so much for being here. Really oh, fun. Thank you. Uh, Jim Key, President and Chief Economist at South Texas Money Management, uh, based in San Antonio, uh, San Antonio, Texas, but here in our 1130 studios with us. Uh, really interesting to hear the bull case for Ford and for Delta. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.